what percentage of business world talk, jargon, advice, wisdom, what percentage of that is bullshit? Oh, wow. I would say a fuck ton more than 50%. I'm like 80% of that. 50 or 15? 50. Way more. Without discussion and something like this is more creative because like we just created a conversation, Matthew. Oh yeah, this conversation is 100% bullshit. Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you are listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and thank you especially to all of you who've had a chance to go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called now, whatever distributor you listen to, to leave a rating, leave a review, just to subscribe, or, you know, if you have a chance at some point to recommend the show to somebody you think might like it, it does make a difference in getting the word out there. I don't do any real promotion on social media, so I am very grateful to all of you for uh, spreading the word a little bit. That is enough of that bullshit. One more quick note. Uh, I, I wanted to give you a heads up because in an upcoming episode, either next week or maybe the week after, depending on my editing schedule, I'm going to be talking with Brian Platzer, who uh, came on a a few weeks ago to talk about the long piece in The Atlantic about the the family who lost their their son on 9-11. Brian is going to come back and we're going to have a discussion about I'm Thinking of Ending Things, both the novel by Ian Reid and the movie by Charlie Kaufman. So if you have not read or watched these uh, uh it's the they're, they're worth worth re- it's worth reading worth watching uh the movie is i think only on netflix and uh it's uh it's a it, it is not a date movie <laughs> i'll say that we're, we're gonna talk i think it should be a fun conversation uh so just wanted to give you a heads up because we will be spoiling uh like gangbusters so if you don't want to have the book or the movie spoiled then be uh, be forewarned this week's episode (laughs) is going to be a divisive one i suspect i've been preparing this episode in one capacity or another for uh, a month and a half now i all right so in early August, I got an email from a guy uh, who called himself Dale A. at Inflection Media suggesting a, a, a potential uh, guest, a spoken word poet for the podcast, for me to interview. He, he uh, listened to the Austin Allen interview. Great uh, interview. It's a few episodes back. I'll, I'll put a link. Uh, in the show notes again. But uh, so Dale had listened to that episode and enjoyed it and uh, made this this recommendation. He suggested that I interview James Nguyen 
who is a spoken word poet, who is mostly a a businessman, really. He's uh, he's been a contributor contributing writer on Forbes. He's had appearances on a slew of big and small uh, television stations, mostly in Australia. Uh, James is is Australian. Uh, Dale introduced him as a seven figure entrepreneur. I don't know what that means. I still don't know what that means. I did, I, you know, looking him up, he he did found a number of different companies, including I think most recently a a cryptocurrency hedge fund. And to clarify, Dale works for James. So James uh, runs Inflection Media. So this was an, an a uh, this was James' company reaching out to promote his his work. Um, rather than an independent recommendation. The problem for me was that I know fuck all about business and the little I do know about spoken word uh, didn't recommend it to me as a, as a likely topic of conversation for the podcast. But I, 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 I sniffed around, I, I had a, a few nice exchanges with Dale, and then I got uh, uh, James agreed to just sit down and do uh, an hour-long pre-interview with me, just open-ended. And he was a an extremely generous, thoughtful guy, and I decided to give it a shot. So <laughs> uh, he was, as I said, uh, it could not have been nicer, and. I think we had a, a very, uh, you know, I, I think we had a fun conversation. First, though, I, I, I guess I have a confession, which is that, you know, I know spoken word a little bit. You know, I've certainly run into it here and there through popular culture in, in college, a little bit in high school, certainly in grad school, a lot in Baltimore, actually. There was a decent, you know, scene there. And I've run into it here and there on YouTube, and and obviously most recently in uh, the the uh, Amanda Gorman's celebrated inauguration poem, which which was was heavily uh, influenced, let's say, by by the spoken word scene or tradition. There's a variety. There's a range. It's not all one thing, spoken word. But when I think of spoken word. I have some prejudices. <laughs> I tend to think I tend to think of it as being trite. I tend to think of it as being a little bit simplistic, a little bit dumb, a little bit technically unadventurous, even formulaic. I tend to find the rhymes kind of predictable. The, the meter in case is not meter exactly, but the rhythm, the, the emphatic delivery to be sort of uh, pounding or sing song too much. I also tend to find the, the, the message or the lessons that it imparts to be a, a little bit old fashioned, a little bit sort of a, a boringly conventional, conservative, didactic. I I find it, you know, I guess uh, above all to be kind of corny. I mean, that's really the truth. And I feel like I should say this up front because it's just not my, it's just not what I would prefer to listen to or to read 
I guess you don't really read it. I would, it's, it's not the poetry I would prefer to spend time with. However, as I started to sort through all of those prejudices, I realized that 201, those are exactly, exactly the same prejudices that one tends to hear expressed by free verse poets when they are asked to comment on formal poetry. As someone who writes mostly in meter and rhyme, I have heard this over and over and over again from people who write in free verse. Oh, formal verse is corny. It's sing-songy. It's predictable. It's conventional. It's conservative. It's boring. It's, it is uh, unadventurous. I hear all of those things from free verse poets. And, you know, I, I, I both see where they're coming from and think that they're basically missing the point. And so I guess part of the goal with this episode, for me, is to give, you know, I don't know that I can even say give spoken word a chance because I, I, I still don't really like it. <laughs> you know, I did, I, I did at, at uh, James' suggestion, I, I looked up some, 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 uh, some spoken word that was okay. Harry Baker is a, a British spoken word guy who's, it's not my favorite, but he's, he's he's got some skills he is able to do some things with words that aren't that are difficult to do that i can't do and do them with panache so i i even though it's not my it's not my flavor of ice cream i respect it and i actually i was actually sent back to you know i wrote a review a few years ago of Dinez smith's book he had a big book a few years ago he's had a, oh, sorry they have had a had, uh, had a few books since then but i wrote a review of, of Dinez smith's uh, book a few years ago and he they're not my favorite po- I, sorry i'm fucking up the pronouns Dinez smith goes by they uh Dinez smith is not my favorite poet but something i have appreciated about their work is that they go because they come from a spoken word background, or at least I, I, I think it's because they come from a spoken word background, they are interested in entertaining the reader. They're interested in keeping the reader's attention, in putting on a little bit of a show, on being entertaining, on being fun. And boy, that is a quality sorely lacking in a lot of on-the-page, printed, perhaps one might say literary poetry today. So I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate it even more from uh, uh, Nate Marshall, who's another literary academic world poetry person who came out of spoken word. And boy, there is some terrific footage online of Nate Marshall doing spoken word as a teenager. Really good stuff. You know, as I mentioned in the article, in in the interview with James, a lot of the spoken word I tend to like best ends up sounding to my ears a whole lot like rap. So Dave Pizarro, who does the the Very Bad Wizards podcast, he he puts out uh, these. Um, he's a a DJ, but not an MC, and so he puts out these records called uh, Beats Without Rhymes. And a lot of spoken word, the best spoken word, the spoken word I tend to like best, t- sounds to my ears like rhymes without beats, uh, which is to say, it sounds like pretty good rap, and maybe. Maybe it would even be better if there were a beat. But then again, the what the fuck do I know? 
I'm not a spoken word person. So again, apologies for that. Apologies also for my total ignorance of the business world. James, I should say, would be the first to to protest that he does not represent the world of spoken word. He would probably say he doesn't represent anybody but himself. And that's fair. But because he's coming on this podcast, we do end up talking a little bit about spoken word broadly, as well as uh, business shit broadly, because those are <laughs> those are maybe my, my two greatest areas of ignorance uh, in, 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 uh, when it comes to his particular world. He is himself relatively new to poetry, or at least he's relatively new to the public poetry world, but he's going about launching a poetry career in what seems to me, and as I talk to him about it, it seems to me the craziest way possible, which is that he's launching a poetry career almost like it's an online business, like, I mean, including this podcast uh, uh, campaign. I... I'm a little bit baffled by all of it. You know, he's, he, if you look at his resume, he, he basically, he appears to be on paper, at least a master of all trades and jack of none. And so, you know, in the end, I, I remain almost as bewildered by James as I was when I first got that email from Dale. But as I said, he was a very nice guy. <laughs> we had an enjoyable conversation. And I thought I, you know, having spent a lot of time preparing this, spending a lot of time, spent a fair amount of time editing, compressing this, I kind of have come to the conclusion that I don't really know what to think about any of this, but you at this point, uh, you deserve, <laughs> you deserve either my trust or you deserve uh, my disregard. And in either case, I'm going to let you decide what to make of all this. So to give you a little bit of context for who James is, I have put at the beginning of our interview, just I've just plugged right at the very start, the audio from one of James's uh, YouTube videos. He releases his poetry primarily as YouTube videos. They're, they're pretty nicely produced. There's a little bit of music, there's some visual effects. Uh, I, I just put the audio to one of those at the very top of our interview, just so you can hear that to begin with and have some sense of the kind of stuff he does. The, the poem that he performs at the very beginning is called Best or Forgotten. He does bring it up later on in the interview. And it's one that seems, you know, it's, it, its themes are, I think, pretty relevant to a lot of what we end up talking about. As I said, spoken word is not my thing. I don't really get it. I didn't get it when I started preparing for this interview. I still don't quite get it. But I, uh, I, I say, I'll, I'll tell you what, I do invite, because I, I believe that there are at least a couple of spoken word enthusiasts who listen to this show. And if you are listening now, I invite you to, to write in and, and let me know if there's somebody I should definitely be interviewing to really, who could really fill me in on spoken word, who could maybe offer a contrast to James, who could write some of the wrong, you know, uh, misrepresentations or the wrong misconceptions that we might give voice to on this podcast, on this in, uh, episode, please do let me know. I, I would love to learn more. I remain skeptical. I remain filled with <laughs> brimming over with prejudice. With that said, here is my interview with James Nguyen 
one of the nicest men I've ever spoken to <laughs> and uh, and one of the uh, the most poised speakers I've ever spoken spoken to. I have listened to at this point a shit ton of his interviews on TV, on other podcasts, on YouTube state channels. And uh, boy, the man is a professional talker. So that makes one of us. <laughs> uh, this is James Nguyen. His poetry can be found at JQN Studios on YouTube. And he uses that same handle for Twitter and Instagram, I believe. I'm going to put links to his work also in the show notes. As always, here's my interview with James. Uh, at the very beginning is his is the audio of him performing his poem, Best or Forgotten. I need to be the best, like literally the best. This isn't in jest to pump up my chest, but genuinely I'm just obsessed to be the best. And this applies to everything, work, business, reading, the acts of the mind, the acts of the heart. There's just something inside me that won't depart that says I need to be the best, like literally the best. But really what's beneath it is a focus on hierarchy. I wanna be at the top of the field. Not just one, but any field. Why? Why do I need to fly so high that it feels like I'm willing to die? Because the top of the field will yield a shield that can convince me that I'm healed. Because the top of the field gets attention. It's convention that after ascension, people will mention you. Sure, sometimes there's tension about pretension or condescension, but that's not what it's about for me. That's not what I want to do. I don't want to be the best so I can detest the rest. I want to be the best so people will see me. So people will free me from the treadmill of popularity. Because I won't need to be popular if I'm the best. People will just see me. See me as someone they admire. Aspire to acquire the fire that's helped me rise higher so they too can retire from the race for attention. Because running after attention is not inspiring, it's tiring. Because there's no expiring of acquiring more status. But here's the thing, when we see the world as zero sum, it's because we're listening to the beat of someone else's drum. Because being the best requires comparison, and comparison precludes people's possible peace from mind. It forces us to always look and find some reference of our own value. And that's behind why I'm stressed to test whether I'm the best. Lest I'm not. Lest I feel the knot in my stomach that's scared to say, what if I'm not? Because who would I be if not the best? How would I define myself? How could I impress myself? But the fact is I'm doing neither. I'm actually suppressing myself, which is depressing myself when I constantly try to win the hierarchy. The hierarchy that doesn't exist outside my mind. I've designed this kind of blind grind that I think is behind mankind because I want to get attention. Because the more attention that I have, the more I'm worthy of attention. The more worthy of attention, the more worthy. The more worthy, the more loved. So really everything that I've said above is misguided by a truth which I've derided and divided myself. But now I've decided and chosen to be guided by my health and address that truth. I don't need to be the best, <laughs> like literally the best. I just need to be loved by me. I just need to put down this made up hierarchy. 
So for, for the people who listen to this, mostly the poetry they're going to be used to thinking about reading, talking about is poetry on the page, sort of literary, you know, literary poetry. So I thought that it might be good both to talk some about your approach with JQN, as well as sort of spoken word a little bit more broadly, though I know that's not exclusively how you you define what yeah. you do. So I, I did, I, I took your advice. I, I watched the Harry Baker uh, video and, and a couple others of his, uh, and he is, I, I think he is extremely skillful. Like it's, it's very, it's, and so I, I watched that and I watched a number of other spoken word. I have very little background with spoken word. So I, I tried to give myself yeah. a brief, brief uh, I- intro. It was, I mean, in some ways it was surprising. In, in others, it was more familiar. It was more like literary poetry than I tend to, or yeah, literary poetry is a terrible way to describe it, but I'm not sure what another, what a better one is. So yeah, so I, you know, for people who are more used to reading quiet, quiet, dry, boring books and or poems and books, how would you characterize spoken word? I wouldn't, I, I, for me, there's not clear rules. There's not clear boundaries around what is and is not spoken word. It's just... There's use of uh, repetition, there's use of rhymes, there's use of musicality, there's use of rhythm. And so even when someone's having a normal conversation and then they start to speak in a certain cadence, like, you know, quote unquote, that could be seen as spoken word poetry in, in isolation, if that makes sense. Right, like so for me, found, found poetry would be one of the other yeah. ways to call that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, I think in a lot of those, a lot of those elements, I think are present in conventional poetry or literary poetry, however you want to call it, the... You know, it is. I realized how hard it is to to get a brief exposure to a a, a subgenre when I when I tried to I tried to look up on YouTube and Google, and I, I used a few names that you'd given me or other people have given me uh, as guidelines. But I also just tried to look up what was you know what did what was most popular. And you know, I think if you looked up what was the most popular literary poetry, you would get a you'd get a mixed bag as well. So of what I saw it seemed like the the three most important elements were moral instruction sort of personal authenticity you know this is my story this is where i'm coming from and then and then third and kind of kind of a distant third was verbal dexterity it did seem like the the most verbally dexterous of it which was some of my my favorite tended to be a little bit like rap without a beat uh, yeah, yeah, so, almost like an acapella rap. So that's kind, right, of, sure. kind of like an urbanized way of yeah speaking about like what how it feels to people. Like that's what it comes down to for me. It's just how people feel and experience the actual uh, the poetry. Yeah. So I guess the the things that I am I, I'm always a little bit skeptical of moral instruction in in art, though there's obviously a, a huge tradition of it, uh, and, and it yeah. continues to be very, I mean, <laughs> like there are, you know, dozens of millions of views of, of a lot of these videos. Uh, and I think you, your, your work is not a lot. I mean, a lot of the spoken word I found was very, very Christian and yours, at least that I've, I've listened to has been pretty secular unless I've yep. missed it to, to, for a skeptic, for the benefit of a skeptic, what do you think is the value of moral instruction and in, poetry or why why is that something that should be present or should it yeah for me it's more moral expression 
right? And so it's more understanding, okay, you know, what are your values? What do you actually stand for? And then what are really unique ways that you can articulate these? Right. And so the ways that I express myself in the world, whether it's, you know, through different activities, my different interactions with people, you know, my choices to choose truth in moments of conflict, whether it's through expression of my actual poetry, whether it's through expression of just my literal, you know, pun unintended here, but literally just speaking to somebody in my spoken word. For me, it's really just different ways that I can articulate the things that I stand for, but it's also even the different ways that I can articulate my points of view. So it's not all, all my spoken word isn't always about philosophy. It isn't always about spirituality. Like I have a lot of spoken word pieces around business concepts. I have a lot of spoken word pieces, you know, and, you know, this is something I'll start to do a lot more next year in terms of commentary around current affairs, commentary around, you know, uh, things that I really like. And so for me, spoken word actually just becomes an extension of my own expression. And, you know, why I think that is, is resonant with people and why people, you know, catches people's attention because they don't often see people, you know, nowadays speaking in rhymes or speaking in, you know, spoken word to articulate their points of view. You know, I don't think it's, it's a prerequisite to have moral quote unquote instruction um, in, in spoken word pieces or poetry in general or art in general. For me, it's just an expression. And so if someone wants to express their, you know, their values and something they stand for with strong conviction, yeah, do it however you mean, uh, by whatever means they feel most resonant with. And for me, spoken word just happens to be that modality for me. I do think that you're probably right that moral expression is a better way to characterize what, at least what I've seen in spoken word and, and what's I think present in, in your videos as well, because it doesn't seem to be, it's not like these are lessons or truths that are new there. It's more like, your spoken word traditionally is performed in a live room with a, with an audience, though there though it has a pretty vital life on YouTube as well. And that's your you know your medium is purely video at least at the moment. But it seems like part of the goal is not so much to teach people as to uh, recite a a familiar truth that then make, sort of people watching feel uh, can affirm. I mean, in a way, it, it feels like a even when it's not Christian, that it has a religious element to it and that it's, it's a communal embrace of a, of an imperative. We ought to do this. We ought not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, know. Yeah, I don't know if I'd categorize or yeah. I don't know if I, if I would identify any of my poetry being religious at all. Um, Cause it's not. Um, yeah. No, I don't think, I don't think the poetry is religious, but I th- it seems like the experience that's implied has something similar to, Commute, like a communal religious experience that you like there's a, there's i don't know if you ever went to church or went to a, another kind of service as a kid or uh, you were oh that's right yeah you were very secular growing up but there, like p- part of at least i was raised catholic i'm an atheist now but p- part of the the tradition is doing uh, having a you you recite at the beginning of the mass a creed of all the things you believe and some of the spoken word I, i've seen feels like it's not that these are new truths it's more like you're saying something everybody already believes and saying it aloud in a particular way makes everyone feel connected yeah i definitely want to differentiate any kind of um any particular religious alignment or anything because i i would identify as agnostic um so yeah none of my poetry is inclined that way at all but what i what i can understand from your point of view matthew is just the idea of of yeah i guess uh, a community undertone because for me like there's actually very few new truths like a lot of the (laughs) truth if if any yeah (laughs) any at all right and so for me like 
And that's why I, yeah, I, I would really differentiate any of my work with any re- religious association because, yeah, and it's actually, it's interesting because that's actually never been mentioned to me ever before. But um, what my role, like what I believe the role of, let's say, spoken word poetry, but really it's a broader definition of art for me, is, is a way of com- communicating and expressing things that, you know, Everybody has subjective truths, but I believe in absolute truths beneath it all. Like the idea of like unconditional love being beneath everything. But even if you think about like modern day New York Times bestsellers and a lot of like the nonfiction books that come out now, even a lot of the fiction books, a lot of the concepts that it's based on, like they've been constant for thousands of years. They've thousands and thousands of years. And so whether we trace, you know, a lot of uh, nonfiction books now around like stoicism, around like other philosophies, like you can, you can trace a lot of these things back to ancient, ancient um, wisdom. Right. And so for me, how I really see a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of written work or a lot of um, let's call it like publications or things that are getting a lot of notoriety these days, like in the last few decades, it's just different ways that you can repackage truths. Right. And you even look at more, um, you know, wider public figures or influences. You, you, you see people like Tony Robbins or you see people who are quote unquote like life coaches or anything like that. And really what they're repackaging is wisdom that has been like true for thousands and thousands of years. And so really when you see the sorts of books nowadays that are, you know, trending quote unquote or are being uh, read a lot, you know, Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, like that was one of the best-selling books potentially of all time. My, my right? sister, my sister loves that book. Yeah. yeah, and so I remember following uh, Mark Manson's blogs for a long time before he released those. But he he quotes uh, like he shows the sorts of books that influenced his writing, right? And they go back to ancient philosophy. And so what you really see is just all the truths they're there. And like I remember reading his uh, reading the books he would recommend about like what influenced his writing. And so you start to tease out these concepts, whether it's from Nietzsche, whether it's from Eric Hoffer, uh, The True Believer, anything like that. And then you start to read his books that he's written. And it's just, he has a very unique way of distilling down that knowledge and that, you know, quote unquote wisdom in a way that becomes a lot more accessible, a lot more palatable to the modern reader. And so, you know, Mark Manson really today is, you know, a a very famous author from how I see it, because he becomes a really beautiful translator, right? It becomes a very relatable translator, but the actual wisdom, the actual truth that he's speaking about, they're not unique and they're not new. And so when I think about spoken word poetry and, you know, the medium that I am really just growing into now, I see spoken word as the same way. Like it's another modality that allows me to translate wisdom that has already been true for a very long time. And so it's different ways that I can articulate things that when you, something you mentioned before, Matthew was, you know, quote unquote, familiar truths. But I think one of the roles that I think art in general play and what I believe I play with my spoken word is actually the fact that these truths aren't as familiar nowadays, because when you really dig down, yeah, they may have been true for a very long time, but the fact that is that a lot of people don't necessarily embody these truths in today's society, what I really see is that, you know, there's a lot of quote unquote knowledge and a lot of um, let's call it intellectual masturbation where people can recite things, but how many people have actually embodied these things. And so for me, there is a real role with art and, you know, my art is spoken word. There's a real role with art to actually express these truths in a way, in a different, unique way that allows it to actually land and for people and gives people an opportunity to actually embody these things. If intellectual masturbation is something you're are skeptical of, then you've come to the wrong podcast. Intellectual yeah, so, sex is much better than masturbation. <laughs> so I'll end a baton who can be really annoying sometimes, but who's also sometimes insightful. I think one of his 
observations. He's he's sort of has tried to start this atheist pseudo religion, but one of his observations about it is that we we need to be the thing about like great truths or, or great ethical wisdom is that we it's not enough to learn it once. You, you have to you have to learn it again and again and again. I, what I'm curious about though is you you know as you, as you said it's not that there are any like new truths that are being that are being dug up by spoken word, but what people are in need of is not to be exposed to them at all, but rather to to be exposed to them in a way that helps them embody them. Uh, rather than simply knowing the words for them, but but I guess then what I'm still skeptical of is it's like does so even if poetry is not giving people a new piece of wisdom exactly, there is still an expectation that poetry will will sort of help people be better people. Is that do you is that do you think that's true? Maybe it's a rabbit hole we don't necessarily have to go down. But like what is what what is better? Like better assumes you're not good enough right now, right? And so, well, like, wait, well, hold on. But you just said like, the, like that, you know, the truth, but you don't embody it. And presumably like no, embodying it would be better. Right. Yeah. For me, it's actually just remembering the truth that's always been there. Um, oh, you're so, so you're, just, you're like, you're not platonic, you're Socratic. That's, that's, yeah. You said, like, yeah. yeah you, all right. Okay. So yeah, yep. yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But you, you want to remember <laughs> it rather than just know it. You want to like, you want to bring it into the, into your life. You know, it's not about things to add. It's about things to subtract. And so for me, like what the role poetry actually plays is allowing to cut through a lot of the noise that gets in the way and I actually see as distractions. And so to your quote before around um, Alain de Botton, uh, around, yeah, wisdom needing to be learned multiple times, like I would actually disagree with the premise there because for me, if you learn it, you only need to learn it once. So maybe you have to hear it multiple times before you learn it, right? Because if you've actually learned a lesson, then you've embodied it. And if you've embodied it, then you're actually living it. That's okay. That's Fascinating. I mean, what you're saying then is that if you've really learned something, if you've really learned a truth, then you don't need to learn it again. You've it, you've embodied it. It has become part of you. But that seems like in that case, I feel like either I've never learned anything, or that can't be true because no matter what I've learned, I've still gone on to fuck up in that. Like I've still gone on like not to embody it, even if I thought I learned it once. So, do you? How do you experience that? Do you actually learn things and then truly embody them forever? Yeah, no, no, no. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not painting myself as like this, um, you know, perfectionist and this, you know, somebody that's unattain unattainable sure, sure, and doesn't sure. like parts of me don't feel certain ways and all this stuff. But for me, it's, it's really around a humility piece around, you know, what, what, it, what is it to actually learn something? You know, everybody goes out and says, here's all the lessons I've learned, this, that, and the other. But how, how much of that is actually virtue signaling? How much of that is actually just saying, oh, yeah, because, you know, for, for the majority of people, if you can intellectually articulate something and, you know, and recite it, most people might, like for a lot of parts of them, it might be really, uh, you know, might be intimidating because they might be like, oh, um, that sounds really articulate. That sounds like that's right. I'm just going to assume and I'm going to accept the premise that you have learned that lesson. What happens if they haven't learned the lesson? They've just learned how to regurgitate it. For me, it's, it's not even about learning. It's about remembering because, you know, again, this assertion I come to at the very start is at, beneath everything, the wisdom that we're all looking for is actually already in us. And so when, when you quote unquote embody something, it's actually just remembering it was already there and you, you have that felt visceral experience of what that feels like inside you. That's my position at least. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that seems, and that seems like very consistent with, with sort of ancient wisdom. You, you have a very high bar to establish that, that you've learned something, which I, I mean, I'm, I, can't, I can't, I certainly can't gainsay that. 
What I'm curious about though, because I've listened to a number of interviews and I've watched the videos that, that I've been able to, of your, your poetry that's either online or that um, your team shared with me and seen, you know, some other interviews with you and the way I've heard you talk about poetry at least is, is very, de- I mean, democratic is a, is a sort of too stuffy a term for it, but you're, you have a very, well, no, like you <laughs> have really a very- going to imagine I'm writing like poetry around politics and everything. No, no, no. Right. Yeah. So that's not what I mean, but it like you, you're, it's very egalitarian. Your, your, um, your, your approach to ethics is like extremely severe and demanding, which I, I respect, but then your approach to, to like aesthetics is, much more loosey goosey. Like, do like I, I, I have some questions like more specifically about your your work and your poetry, but then I'm also curious like what makes a poem good? Like, do you think there is it? Can you say that a poem is good or bad? Or like a poem succeeds or fails or is better or worse? Because it seems like you're really resistant to those kind of terms. Yeah, I'm, you're right. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 You're right because all of those things are just value judgments, right? And so. Yeah, all of those things are value judgments. Yeah. What like, and you know, it goes down the rabbit hole of what is art and art being like a, a hugely subjective domain and all of that stuff. Sure. But it's like, it's up to everybody to define you know the reason they write poetry or the reason they like. Even if someone's listening to my poetry, right? For them to say it's good and bad requires some level of an expectation of what they believe it should or should not be. Sure. And so, without them really knowing my intention, then they have to project or, you know, predict or presume some level of intention behind why I'm writing things. The reality is nobody ever really knows, except for me, why I'm actually writing these things. So for someone to evaluate it as good as bad or good or bad, whether they evaluate it based on, you know, what they see as, um, you know, like more widely accepted criteria for popularity, maybe they, they conflate popularity with success, right? Maybe they conflate, you know, awareness with success. Maybe they conflate um, you know, musicality with success or whatever, you know, whatever criteria they evaluated on. But for me, and this, this potentially um, feeds into a little bit more of uh, more my spiritual disposition around poetry and art. For me, the, the poems that I'm most proud of, let's say, um, and whether you want to use that as a barometer or a definition of, of how I see a successful poem, the ones that are most um, expressive and authentic and aligned with who I believe I am and who I believe, um, or, you know, it's the place from which those poems are actually written. Well, for me, it's just like how, how authentically is it expressing what I'm trying to say, right? And so that for me is a successful poem. You know, if it really resonates with a wider demographic and it gets, it goes quote unquote viral and a ton of people watch it, like great. But like, if we really strip it all back, like to, to presume something is a good or a bad poem, it again, it comes back to the duality that is an illusion that is created by saying something's good because to say something's good, you assume something's bad and to say, you know, and so that's a false dichotomy because what if it was exactly as it is? Right. No, and I mean, so it, it, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So if it truly is just an expression of our soul, which I assert is what creativity really is when we're in a deep flow state, whether that's poetry, whether that's paintings, whether that's sculptures, whether that's dancing, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. If, if that's, if you would set that premise, Matthew, that, at our very, very core, like it's the it, the creativity that is flowing through us is, you know, our connection with, um, you know, whether you want to call it source, whether you want to call it, you know, the universe, whether you want to call it just a deep flow state. Again, it's just semantics. But if that's, if you accept that as the premise of what, you know, deeply creative works of quote unquote art are, then there's 
really no, nowhere else to really evaluate um, its quote-unquote success other than its alignment with authenticity. Okay, so I think I think what's definitely true is that if if a poem that it's it's impossible to say whether or not someone else's poem succeeded according to that person's intentions, right? That that the the poet is the only person who can really be be an authority on that question. I totally am with you there, but it seems like there are two possibilities. Like one is that either poetry or art is the sort of pure expression of of one's essential being. Yep. Or that art is maybe some of that along with craft and skill and convention and uh, luck. How would you define art? Oh, I mean, I, th I think that I think that definitely the artist's you know essential self is, has to be there somewhere. I mean, without that, it's, it it feels like uh, the, st the stakes are too low, or the there's no nobody's on the hook. It doesn't matter. It does it's not really going to. It's not really going to connect with anyone else. That said, there are plenty of like really good people who are terrible poets and really like who, who are, you know, like who are beautiful selves and are terrible poets. Or, you know, alternatively, like maybe there are people who have a really, who can really authentically express themselves through poetry, but it's not very appealing in the same way that like you have a favorite movie, right? And there are movies that you don't like as much, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but then, so some of those are better. And some of those, I mean, like probably the best of them really do have something of the director and the writer and the actors, some essential expression that's really authentically in there. But there's also a bunch of other stuff that has to be there. Because if it's not, then, you know, I could def I could show you some student films that you would fucking hate, you know, <laughs> that are really authentic. So that doesn't seem like, to me, it feels like I love poetry too much to abandon it to like mere therapy and expression. Therapy's fine. But like, yeah, totally. also there's like, they're, yeah, I, I totally think they're better and worse poems. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, what I just find super interesting about that um, is beneath it all is a level of subjectivity because, you know, a poem you might say, James, this is the best poem. I might read it and it does not resonate with it, sure. which is, and, and, and this is, this is more interesting as, as people just get more into, you know, the public spotlight and, and definitely with social media and, and the internet now, like, sorry, Barry, I, missed, I missed one of the words you said as people get into more of the spotlight, right? With the spotlight. So, okay. When, yeah, yeah. yeah. When they get more notoriety and then, you know, it just feels because the internet um, just allows you uh, to get feedback, let's say in a diplomatic way, just get feedback from, you know, millions and millions and millions of people where previously, you know, you just were never able to do that. Right. Um, 150, uh, you know, cap, I think it's Dunbar's number. Um, where previously, what is, sorry, that, what, what does that mean? Uh, so um, I'm pretty sure it's Dunbar's number, but like previously, like our, our brains and our communities, we only were, were wired, like neuro, uh, neurologically, we're only wired to be able to, um, uh, to be able to socialize and interact and really properly know about a tribe of about 150 people. Okay. And so like that's, that's, you know, physiologically how we evolved. And so now with social media, it's like thousands in terms of someone's, you know, say Facebook feeds, but then realistically, once you start to get to a position of, um, you know, public, let's call it, um, you know, just public awareness or, you know, social media, quote unquote, uh, fandom or celebritydom, um, then you're talking about millions of people interacting with you, right? And so your brain just can't really process any of any of this feedback because whether it's positive or negative, your dopamine like um, receptors are just being hijacked like over and over and over again. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is the whole idea of, um, you know, something being good or bad. Like at the end of the day, 
yeah, you could you could show me something that you absolutely love. And with all respect, I may have a completely different view of that. And so, yeah, it is really interesting when people start to think about, you know, what is a good and bad poem? What's a good and bad, you know, piece of art or anything like that? And, you know, when I really just strip everything back, it's like, it's, it's almost this, it's this weird paradox because in, in one, in one hand, like we all live by ourselves because the only person we ever, ever go to sleep with is our own mind, right? You wait, go to bed with yourself. Even if you're sleeping next to your partner, you, you go to bed with yourself and you wake up with yourself. But then the flip side of that paradox is that we're also always connected in a community. And so, you know, it is a natural disposition to be seeking some form of, let's call it, you know, validation, but really it's just, uh, it's, it's some sort of affirmation that you're still accepted in a tribe because otherwise, you know, ancestrally, then there is a, um, there is a, you know, evolutional fear of rejection because it meant death back in the Savannah. So it, it, it's kind of weighing those two things, but, you know, from a philosophical level, when I really step back from it, it's like, yeah, I'm writing poetry because that's just what's flowing through me. You know, if that happens to resonate with a high number of people, great. That resonate like what I'm speaking or what I'm communicating or, you know, um, other artists talk about channeling something or whatever it might be. Well, it's actually speaking through me may resonate with a lot of people because that may actually be from, you know, from what is really pure inside me. Right. And it's not filtered based on, you know, all these other biases and all these other prejudices. But if the answer is, I truly believe that I'm connected to my deepest authentic self, and that's the place from which I'm writing these poems. And it doesn't resonate with every, like a a huge ton of people, millions of people. Well, my question, um, not even just yourself, Matthew, is really to anybody's psyche that then has some level of dissonance of whether they've actually achieved quote unquote material success or not. It's to really ask the question of why they believe that is necessary because, you know, there may be people that aesthetically people might be like, Oh, they're just beautiful. And yeah, there's the scientific symmetry of like um, face proportions and all this stuff. Right. So yeah, there are people that just look absolutely gorgeous, but somebody might find somebody else really attractive and you know, somebody else may not share that opinion, but does that make that person any less attractive? Because if, if a piece of art is written and it's really deeply authentic and expressive to the to the artist, but nobody necessarily shares that same expression, well, is that really art? And like, that's the question, like, I would love to tease out with you. Oh, I, t- I mean, and, and that's actually, I think like, that's a question I'm constantly asking about l- literary poetry as well. I think like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but like, you know, beholders often cluster in their opinions yeah, like yeah, some, yeah. you know some some beholders are outliers but like my you know I, what i what i try never to do is to quarrel with someone who genuinely loves a piece of art even if i think it has no value to me like if you, uh, if you genuinely love, love you, why sorry, is that the case? i would love to ask the question why do you do that because i don't i'm not interested in arguing with anybody's pleasure what i am interested in often is getting some kind of account of that right i think like this is this is like part of the difficulty of criticism is you know for some people criticism if you're if if you are somebody who's who's whose name carries a certain weight then maybe your thumbs up thumbs down is enough if you're warren buffett you know maybe all people need to know is whether you're you're for it or not but yeah i think like for for my purposes like good criticism doesn't just render a judgment it relates an experience. It helps the reader see what the critic saw that had value or see what the critic saw that, that maybe was a flaw. The problem I think is that very often the, 
the work that people say uh, they admire, they often won't bother to say they enjoy it, but they'll say they admire it or they will promote it or they will disseminate it. That work is not the work that they actually enjoy. I mean, I think part of this is like, because po literary poetry has been kind of removed from, oh God, all these fucking, market is a horrible word for it, but like literary poetry has been, has been uh, removed from the, a, a con condition in which it has to respond immediately to audience uh, experience. And so mm -hmm. I think the criteria on which it gets promoted, by which it gets promoted, tend to be, uh, tend to become less and less about anybody's actual pleasure. So yeah. I, I will not say you like this poem, fuck you, you're wrong. What I will say is uh, lots of people are promoting this particular work. I don't see what's good about it. Does anyone else? Yeah. Kind of like, can so anyone I, I, chime in and explain what's there? Because I don't see it. And I think often there's nothing there. Sorry, go ahead. It's like a movie. It's like, I don't like that movie. Oh, you do? Why? And it doesn't have to come from, you know, um, a cast to give uh, tone. You're, right. not, you're not necessarily trying to be too confrontational or anything. It might just, just be like, oh, I'm just trying to understand it. And so, you know, when I really strip back, like whether it's spoken word, whether it's, you know, literary poems, um, poetry, whether it's, you know, books, anything like that. It's like, well, what's the intention behind all of those things, right? Because some people may be writing, like say journalists, right? Maybe for them, it's a less of, uh, you know, an artistic expression. Some, you know, journalists and features may, maybe. Some of them may just be reporting news. And they're like, oh, my role and my responsibility and my intention here is to write it in a way that as many people as possible can get the message that I think is really valuable and really necessary for a lot of people to hear. So then it just becomes around intentionality. And so, you know, what I find really um, fascinating and, and what, yeah, what I'm increasingly leaning more into is spoken word as my modality of communication. Because there are times where I'm going to communicate where I just want to be expressive. And there's times where I want to communicate where I'm actually trying to communicate for the audience as a way to, to you know, convey a message that I think is really necessary to hear. This is something we talked about before a little bit in our earlier yeah. in, in earlier conversation that I find fascinating and also I'm super skeptical of because there's yep. there's like there's a great deal of precedent for this like uh, Lucretius you know uh, wrote the the nature of things that he he said his he said his his message was bitter as wormwood but his verse was sweet as honey and so the goal was to kind of ease <laughs> the you know the, the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down and then in, I even think of like in the WPA had the the living newspaper it was like a government funded theater project where they would in they would enact newspaper stories to kind of bring bring the news to a popular audience and so i'm what you're suggesting is that spoken word can just be a vehicle for not even like like more like verse than poetry like just a means of communication and that seems again like historically there's there's totally precedent for that but but it seems like I find it like it just seems hard to figure out like how you would contextualize that so as not to seem hokey. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, just yeah, elaborate on what you would assume is the definition of hokey. <laughs> you know, there I have. Uh, I'm going to pull a James and say <laughs> I don't. I don't have. I a love good... that we're already there. It's yeah, a James. We're there. Yeah. We're, it's done. We we. I don't have a good definition, but I but I think a lot of people. Uh, have a feeling that they recognize when they see something and they say, ah, that's a little hokey. So I, I think whatever you want to call it, I think that I find it hard to imagine the context in which you could deliver, say, the news or economic principles or whatever kind of message you want in spoken word 
in a in a non coffee house setting and not and not like have people raising eyebrows or laughing or ignoring it. Yep. So yeah, really good points. And so that was true with anything that was, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's innovation because it's not. As you said, there's like a lot of ancient precedent for verse being used as a, a modality of communication. But you know, until something exists, it always seems crazy. You know, right? <laughs> okay, fair. fair. Before, yeah. before there's any before there's any genre of new music, whether we talk about hip hop, where we talk about rap, where we talk about reggae, where we talk whatever, like before it was mainstream, it was odd because it was the minority at the time, right? And so for me, I'm like, okay, cool. Like I, I totally concede that it's unfamiliar because it doesn't exist right now. But on the flip side of that, that's also why it's widely, widely, wildly, sorry, exciting for me because it doesn't exist right now. And, you know, I know the, the modes of communication that I'm used to, you know, I've done, um, I've spoken it because, you know, in, in, in another life, uh, I've done the business game a lot. So I've done a lot of keynotes, I've done a lot of conferences, I've done a lot of public speaking. And so, you know, I know the sorts of messages I can communicate that way. You know, I've also, you know, done a lot of writing in, in a lot of mainstream publications and my writing's been, you know, featured um, wildly, um, widely, sorry, I keep mixing those two words up. Um, so I also know what resonates in terms of that. And I know what I can communicate when it comes to just like a written word. But then I'm like, okay, great. There's a lot of, there's a lot of speakers. There's a lot of writers. There's like brilliant, brilliant writers, brilliant journalists, brilliant, you know, keynote public speakers, all of this stuff. But there's also a level of cut through that comes from uniqueness and authenticity. And, you know, I'm just betting with my feet at the end of the day, like it's my re reputational risk that I'm putting out there. And it's like, okay, if you also accept that reputation in and of itself is the illusion of the identity, then you're not really losing anything anyway, because it just becomes expression and everything is just expression. And so for me, yeah, right now, potentially it seems very unfamiliar, very unorthodox. The idea outside, whether it's a coffee, um, uh, a, a coffee store uh, kind of setting or whether it's, you know, a book reading or anything like that. But what happens when that changes? What happens when people actually want to listen to something that is actually engaging and exciting? Because when we start to, when we start to, you know, deconstruct the attention economy and we look at how people are actually consuming content now, and we actually see that there is, there is a, a startling fragmentation of our attention attention span. And when you start to think about, you know, the different, you know, different, let's call it channels, different platforms that are springing up, TikTok, uh, you know, Clubhouse even is a longer form, but, you know, social media, uh, like Instagram and Twitter, you just start to see a trend towards something that is becoming increasingly, increasingly shorter in terms of the attention span. And so when you really start to look at that, well, the shorter the attention span, the more powerful the cut through needs to be. And so what is your point of difference when you're just like a speaker? What's your point of difference when you're just, you know, a writer? What's your point of difference when in five seconds, I can actually recite a rhyme that is pithy and also profound at the same time? Well, like in the same way, the, people, the reason for me, the reason quotes are remembered, well, really profound quotes, even though they're really pithy, is good explanations have exponential reach, right? And so there's, it, it's kind of um, the half-life of the half-life of a really good quote. Yeah, it can be increased by how, how clever the compression is. Because, you know, a five-word quote can be remembered for so long. Well, what happens when, you know, different messages, whether it's around a current affairs, whether it's around, you know, first principles or mental models or whatever, you know, people might be interested in those happen to be my interests. What happens when I can communicate those in five seconds in a way that people actually want to remember because it's a hook, 
because people like they just resonate with it. Right. And my assertion is just the expression um, that's coming through me and what I'm writing is just more resonant. Like the truths, potentially like 10, 20, 100, 1,000 people can write the same truths. We've seen that. Right. But the reason why people will actually resonate and people remember, people will share, people will listen to the spoken word that I'm creating, or just in general, you know, I, I assert just expressive art is because. Yeah, I'm going to say things in ways that other people aren't saying them. And so it's actually really exciting for me that something like this doesn't exist right now. I'm such a fucking idiot because you're like, basically what you're saying is like the proof of the pudding is in the tasting and they, you know, they, they laughed at Jesus too. And like, you know, if you think of the OJ trial, it's like the only sentence anybody remembers from that verbatim is if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. So you're, you're, you're definitely right. That like if it works, it's going to work and it's going to seem strange until it does. So you're in addition to being maybe the least flappable person I've ever spoken to, you're, you also are, are pretty, uh, you're not, I think you're not at all belligerent, but you did sort of say that, that maybe poets or artists have neglected certain imperatives that you, that you're at least trying to pursue, or you're trying to live your, your own live out your own uh, life and work by one being that an artist has an obligation to promote himself to self-propagate to to get the work it's not enough to make the work you have to get the work out there that's part of being an artist and then the other one being that the the market of attention is is you know the the most viable if not always the best way to measure artistic success is is that fair is that a fair paraphrase um yeah, semantically, like, yeah, there's a few things I like. Please, um, please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to touch on just like the idea of success and everything. But um, yeah, for me, you know, whether it's, yeah, there's a few things. So the first thing is, yeah, I, I believe it's actually, you take it one step back. It's even before the promotion of art, it's the creation of art. Right. And so what I believe every artist, you know, and I actually assert everybody's an artist, they just need to find their modality, um, you know, an artistic form. Like for me, business is actually quite an artistic form, right? What? I, what? Business yeah, is I've an art seen, form? You see an industry as a blank canvas, right? And something that doesn't exist in that industry. My background has been in tech. Um, so, you know, something that doesn't yet exist. And I'm not talking about business, you know, you, the pure capitalist drive and just trying to make money. But I'm talking about building a business, building a technology, building a solution that doesn't yet exist. Like that's deeply creative because the industry in and of itself, the market is a blank canvas because, and then in the same well, way- That's like, like, that's like an invention, right? Yeah. But what's business then? Then I would question the assumption of, and the definition business, of- well, but business, is, business is an enterprise designed to make money. Like businesses fail or succeed based on whether they make money. Like an inv- you can, businesses are often attached to a new invention that solves a problem in a, in a creative way. And like, Invention is totally, I mean, obviously almost by definition is involves creativity and maybe art, but business is a, like businesses do succeed or fail. Like they have a, there is a measure for how they succeed or fail, right? Which is money. Yes. Yeah. So say you come up with a really groundbreaking technology. Um, it could be, you know, anything. It could be related to AI. It could be related to blockchain. You know, again, yeah, that's just showing um, uh, my, my prejudice your, and my, background. You know, my yeah, filter yeah. bubble. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but whatever it might be, right? Um, you know, I'm involved in an organization, you know, it's real innovation in terms of, you know, technology around consciousness and, and all these different things, right? So say we accept the premise around uh, technology and innovation, right? So if you just create an invention or you just innovate something, well, if that doesn't get, again, back to the tree falling in the woods, if that doesn't get to anybody, 
not, for me, that's a that's a real disservice to the community. That's a real disservice to you know the the people or the organizations or whoever you've built this innovation for or you've invented this for. That's a real disservice to them that I can't get into their hands. So then, what's the next step? Well, how do you actually map out the next steps of actually how to get that to market? How do you actually you know quote unquote build a brand, build like the marketing aspects of it? How do you then create business models to make it viable? All of that actually becomes deeply creative. Like one of my friends, um, I can't take credit for this analogy, but he thinks about it as uh, similar to cooking. Say there's different ingredients, right? And you can have, you know, uh, a masterful chef um, who, you know, say is a Michelin star chef who you give him, um, you give him or her, you know, eggs, um, butter, a whisk or whatever it might be. And they're going to make a totally different, you know, batch of scrambled eggs compared to, you know, somebody who's just cooking on the weekends. Right. And so the ingredients, then it becomes a, a, an actual area of creativity for how you use those ingredients to create the end product. The same thing I believe is true in business, because, you know, for me, I actually extend the definition of business to innovation as well, because I find that deeply creative and I like innovating and creating new technologies, um, however you want to define technologies. But, you know, the layer on top of that is like, okay, once you've done that, well, how do you actually get that in the hands of the people that you, and this actually feeds into your question, uh, Matthew, around, you know, my, my thoughts on art. Um, but then how do you actually get this, let's call, let's call it the base level um, of technology or innovation as a form of art, right? If, it's, if we accept that there's an area of creativity there and we accept that, you know, creativity is a precursor to art, then we can say that, you know, an innovation in and of itself can be artistic. Right. And so, you know, if say, whether it's, um, whether it's Einstein, whether it's Edison, whether it's Tesla, whether it's who, like all these ancient, um, all these historic inventors, if they didn't do what they did, then we wouldn't be living the lives that we do. And so if we really, if we accept that they had a responsibility first and foremost, um, to channel their creativity and their, their unique expression to something that can move our, you know, our humanity forwards and our civilization forwards, then I really I really take a step back and I see the same thing in terms of any form of artistic expression, right? So whether it's spoken word, whether it's, you know, written poetry, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, fiction, uh, creative novels, whether it's, you know, dancing, whether it's, you know, any form of creativity in that sense. For me, I actually believe there's a mandate to create, right? I believe there's a mandate to channel that creativity. And that's, you know, to, that's uh, a mandate on whom? a mandate on everybody mandate. What does that mean? on On the artist. But you said everybody. You said everybody's an artist. Yeah. So it would be everybody. Yeah. Once they found their medium of, once they found their medium of artistic expression, I actually believe it's a real disservice to everybody if their unique, uh, yeah, their unique creative expression isn't channeled. And so that's what I was actually speaking about. Not necessarily like yes. Once you actually have it out, then there's the next layer of creativity where it's like, oh, you have a responsibility to get that to as many people as possible if you can powerfully help people. But it's not necessarily to say that, you know, the market in and of itself is the sole determinant um, of your success. For me, it's like, how authentically have you expressed yourself? And generally speaking, getting it to the market is going to give you that level of feedback, not to determine your success in terms of how artistic or creative you've been in terms of your expression, but it will determine your success in terms of how many people it can actually impact. Okay. So I think, and I think, I, I think I've follow the, I mean, I do, I do still think like everybody's an artist is like saying everything's political. Like the word begins to lose its meaning, but, but if you, the, the, the distinction I think I I do, that makes sense to me is that you're saying that the, the market of attention, which again, there's just, this is a terrible way to describe it, but, but seeing how people respond to things 
yeah. uh, whether it's on social media or, or elsewhere, that's not a great way to determine whether you have authentically expressed yourself, which I think, yeah. I think like, like that's a pretty intuitive observation. I think like most people would be with you there, but it is a good way to get a sense of whether what you have said or what you have put out there can help people. Is that at least resonate with people. Yeah. And right, well, right. Yeah. Well, maybe it doesn't help them, maybe, but at least it does something to them. Yeah, that's right. Whether they resonate with it and then the precursor to actually being able to impact the change would be a level of resonance with the message. Where, where, I, where I think I'm, I'm really with you is I, I, I tend to think that because we, we have such a glut of the, the horrible word we you know, now all use content in, in our culture. I, I do I think- I can that, see your body literally shook oh, as you said yeah, that. It's, like, oh. it's, yeah, I have, to, I have to gag a little bit to get it out. I, I do think that like the, the Herman Melville, Emily Dickinson, Vincent Van Gogh model of, of like being ignored until you're dead. I think that's gonna be less and less of a meaningful possibility. I think we're gonna see fewer and fewer people really emerge if they did not emerge in some capacity when they're alive. Artists, I mean, because I think we're just with such an absolute flood that, I agree that things will be washed under. So so I do think that like, while, while like Nikola Tesla's obscurity doesn't mean he was any less of a scientist, you know, if, just because he was not as good of a businessman as say Edison, um, it, it doesn't, I, I I'm not, I don't know what I think about saying the artist has an obligation to self-promote, but maybe so at, this, at this point, nobody else, it's not going to happen otherwise. Yeah. You know, if, if people are creating just for their own expression and that's it. Okay. If they're happy just expressing and looking at their painting or reading their own poetry, fine. But if, if they're creating because they believe that what is being channeled through them, what their expression can tangibly impact other people, like the, the sorts of poetry I write, you know, having gone through my own mental health challenges, having gone through my own, you know, like really trying times in my life, some of my poems around, you know, entrepreneurship and around that being futile and around, you know, a, a quest to be the best, like best of forgotten is actually one of my poems yeah. around the more you know, work I've done is the more... I realized I just like climbed hierarchies to be seen rather than climb hierarchies, you know, for any sense of actual fulfillment. But it's like messages like that, I believe are going to be really resonant with other people who are on that endless treadmill, who are pursuing entrepreneurship for, for just that reason or are pursuing, you know, achievements and accolades and external validation for just that reason. And, you know, for me, I believe I have a mandate, therefore, to communicate that and get that to as many quote unquote, you know, high achievers, you know, entrepreneurs, high performers that also sh share a similar story because that's, that's my way. And that's and the beauty of the internet now is the scalability of the message, but really beyond the message is the scalability of that level of empathy. Because, you know, going through those times, I would have really been able, and I've, I've also had, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Will Smith's philosophies actually. And like growing up, oh, I would watch- of, of what? Will Smith. Oh, Will Smith. Will. Oh, the actor. Okay. Yeah, the actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of his philosophies growing up. And I remember just watching uh, a lot of uh, his interviews on YouTube a lot. And just a lot of his quotes really resonated with me at the time. And so, you know, that ability to, un to, to feel like somebody understood me, to feel, literally feel that level of empathy from somebody outside anybody in my immediate circle, like that was really powerful for me in, in really... Uh, in really important times in my life and in proper reflection points in my life. And so my poetry being another way that I can, you know, almost pay that forward 
almost communicate and, and show people a level of empathy, you know, at scale when they can actually listen and experience my poetry and experience the same lessons that I've learned. Like back to the start of our conversation, maybe that might not allow them to learn the lesson, but it will give them the opportunity to at least see or or get, you know, Elaine de Baton's quote, just being given another opportunity to at least hear the lesson. I'm curious about a few things. First, I wanted to, I realized as I was preparing for this interview that we we have a common burden, you and I, uh, which is that the James Wen and and I know I'm, I'm not quite pronouncing that correctly, but uh, uh, would you say it one time so that everyone can hear it correctly, please? Yeah, James Nguyen. Uh, so James Nguyen and Matthew Smith are exceedingly common names, incredibly <laughs> hard to nail down on Google. So when, like when I published my first book, I had to I just I had to come up with something, so I threw my middle name in there to distinguish it. And you as as a in your poetry publishing life, you publish as JQN or on YouTube, it's JQN Studios. And I think that's also on uh, Instagram and Twitter or some other places, just yeah. as, a, as a way to distinguish from the millions of other James Nguyen's. So I, I, my heart goes out to you there. I feel I feel your pain there. Uh, I definitely have had a, a similar experience. I, I'm, I'm curious. So You've, you referred a couple times to, in, in a, a, another interview I heard, and then in our conversation to this book, The Second Mountain by David Brooks, I've not read it, but my understanding of it is that it's sort of a book about, about people who have achieved worldly success, but then still have a lot of life left and want to do something more with it. And then sort of what the second, what's the second mountain to climb? What's the second, you know, uh, great, great goal to achieve? And in your case, at least part of this has to do with a kind of a kind of a, a rhetorical public service through poetry. What I'm curious about, though, is that it seems like you're you you talk about your poetry in one hand as a as a sort of a pure self-expression. That what really matters is that you're just sort of authentically being into being into words and allowing that to come out unfiltered. But if if it's also if it's also for public consumption and not just and like public consumption in a way that you like, you're hoping to do people good. Do, do you revise? Do you, and if so, how, like, what are the criteria you use in determining whether or not your work is good enough yet? Even if you and I are always going to disagree on, you know, goodness and badness of poetry. Yeah, totally. You know, um, just quickly on uh, second mountain by David Brooks. Um, Like the, the whole crux of that book is, yeah, the first, the first mountain is the one you climb based on, you know, what you believe you're supposed to. Right. And so, you know, whether it's yeah, material success, whether it's, you know, you, you try to become a professional athlete or, you know, start a family at a certain time or anything like that. Um, and then for those who are lucky enough to get to the top of that mountain, realize that, oh, it's actually super unfulfilling. And what um, Brooks actually asserts is that the second mountain, the one that is the one that's worth climbing is the one actually around service. It's around community. It's around um, contribution. And so, you know, that's why I, I really deeply align with it. Um, because you know a lot a lot of my friends as well um, who've reached yeah their first mountain and again that's all that's all subjective in and of itself too and relative you know what everybody sets their first mountain as but they also have come to a similar um, I guess understanding right or similar conviction where they're like oh it actually is around service it's actually around how we can give back right instead of first mountain always being about like climbing 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 and not quite taking, but it's all around building something for ourselves. The second mountain is around um, giving back and building something for the people around us and for our communities, right? Um, so that is something I'm really resonant with. 
uh, in terms of my writing process, which is a you know um, a bit of a and, re- and revision. I want to get. I want. Do you want revision? Yeah, revision. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because well, there's some point. What like do you say? Is this good or bad or good enough? Or is there some crate? You know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, as a writer, like you would know as well, Matthew. It's like eighty percent um, of the fine tuning. Well, from my experience previously when writing, comes in the editing, right? And so, really, how I go about these, like a lot of my poems, some actually are first takes. And they just flow through and then I read them back and I'm like, oh, that actually, I don't need, I don't feel compelled to make any edits. But then when I'm working on especially longer pieces or, you know, I'm working on pieces that um, I just feel like have a lot of density to it and I can't do it in one sitting. Yeah, there's, there is going to be a lot of revision. And so in my editing and revision process, it's really around, uh, it's almost like the self-performance. So how this actually, even when I was writing, a, a lot of it would be speaking out loud to when I, for the prose to make sure that it actually sounded right. And these are back when I'm writing essays and articles and stuff. But when with my spoken word, I'm performing it out loud to myself and I'm experiencing the words myself. Yeah. So in terms of the editing process, yeah, especially for longer, uh, longer, um, not articles, longer poems that are a lot more dense and I can't do them in one sitting. Um, What I'll do is, and this is the whole revision process anyway, I'm I'm performing my poems back to myself, right? And the things I'm looking out for are the rhythm, the musicality, you know, even the rhyming couplets. Are they the best word choices that I could use there, right? Um, So, you know, so I was even writing a poem around uh, teenage mental health because that's something that's uh, more grade day by day is actually one of the lines. But yeah, even even like certain words that like a rhyming couplet I was using was suppression and obsession. And like, it's just choosing those right words that I might revise later and be like, oh, I think I could actually rhyme a better word here. And so that's when I'm kind of, uh, that's my revision process really. And it's it's also like, am I communicating the message that I'm trying to share, right? So the whole expressive download, let's say, and just like, um, you know, the brain dump, the first draft, it's, it's actually the revision process is no different. And I don't know how other writers do it. But for me, like when I was writing, uh, especially long form essays, yeah, I sometimes I would actually turn off my screen and just write. Because one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, the sayings I really love is there's no such thing as writer's block, there's just self judgment. And so when I would yeah, when I would be able to just sit with that part of me that would be judging what I'm writing, then I would just literally just write. And this is back when I'm writing essays. True. So I find that self-judgment to be less vocal now, um, that part of me that uh, judges my own writing to be less vocal in my spoken word. But when I'm reading it back, it's not like I'm judging and being like, oh, that was an awful line that I wrote. I'm like, oh, that just doesn't sound right. Like if I'm in, I'm putting myself in the position of the listener and I'm like, oh, I don't actually feel that in the same way I when I was writing it, the message isn't communicated as much. And so, yeah, in, in some ways I like, I will play my own listener and I'll be writing for, I'll be writing for myself as the listener. So in both ways, it's still an expression of my authenticity, but like sometimes you just need to step back from the painting to see how it looks on a slightly more macro level. Yeah, that, that makes, I mean, that makes sense. It's, 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 it's intuitive. I still, I, at some point I, I would, you know, if we were talking forever, I would want to, I would want to put more pressure on the question of what sounds good or bad, or even like whether there's such a thing as an acquired taste. Cause it seems like the wanting simply to gauge all art, all, all artistic, all, all aesthetic response by kind of what, what uh, resonates with it, with, with the poet versus what resonates with the listener. I'm, I'm skeptical. I guess I just think there's, there's maybe there's a little bit more scaffolding in there than, than mere intuitive response. Yeah, there's, there's definitely more nuance as well. Um, 
Yeah, there's more nuance, but you know, there's a level of intuition as well. And it's just how I write. And in the same way, like if you draw kind of analogies with you know jazz musicians or you know uh, any muso, like they may take inspiration from you know different genres and then meld it together to create what's really unique to them, right? And somebody who really likes rock but also may like jazz may create something that's deeply unique. Somebody who may like reggae and may like um, you know soul, right? And so it's not to say one's right or wrong, but that just creates the unique intersection, the unique expression that is the authentic artist and so for me that's what it is because you know i take a lot of inspiration as well from you know my taste in music and so the sorts of music that i like actually informs subconsciously like for um forms the sort of musicality that i include in my poetry right and so if i was i'm not um i'm personally not into like heavy metal or, or you know hard rock or anything but if i was i would actually assert my poems would sound very different like I'm a lot more into r and I'm a lot more into soul and um, that sort of genre. And so, and a lot of, uh, you know, acoustic music. And so like that informs a lot of my poetry. And so, you know, even watching it back, like I can feel, I can feel the musicality of my musical inspiration through what I write. And I know that would be different for a different poet if they were writing the same sort of spoken word, if they liked different musical genres, for instance. Yeah. Oh no, that certainly seems true. And my, what I what I've gathered about you as a about your literary sensibilities, because most of the books you've referred to in, in our two conversations were either philosophical or self help books. And, and what I what I gather is that, that for you, just as when we say publish, this is really putting out video and audio rather than you know printed printed words. What it seems like you're for you like you you take in work mostly auditorially rather than like you you don't seem like you're as much a big reader of poetry as you are a listener to lyrics is that, is that of, fair yeah in terms of spoken word yes yeah like I, yeah, is, I, there, I think, is there other is there other uh stuffy top collar button sh- uh, poetry that you do read on the page yeah i wouldn't say as much like i've read i've read <laughs> shakespeare I've, I've gone into a, a yeah a lot of sonnets a lot of love poems i think one of the books yeah, the, the, the name escapes me, but it's not even just around poetry, right? Like I'm a big reader. Um, in a previous life, I was reading a lot, right? Um, but in terms of now, yeah, in terms of now, what really informs a lot of my writing and creativity is more the different modalities. So it is like auditory. I would listen to a, like a lot of the music will inform what I write. Um, a lot of the conversations I'll have, a lot of the speeches I'll listen to, uh, like that probably informs a lot more of my creativity now than the written word. But it's also like, yeah, especially in word choices, like, yeah, I love writers who just have beautiful, beautiful command um, of the English language. Like, I'm in such admiration, especially when, you know, previously I was doing a lot of written, like, writing on on the page, right? Um, and a lot of articles and essays and a lot of those things. And so, you know, I have a deep place in my heart for those times in my life. But I would say in terms of what I identify with more now, like, yeah, even, even my poetry when I write it, um, you know, my preference when I'm sharing it with people is for them to hear me perform it rather than to read it. Oh, I mean, that seems essential. And, that, and with spoken word as with rap, the, 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 the vocals are part of the, it would be like reading song lyrics. The, the vocals are, are part of the, the art form. That, no, that, that totally makes sense. I, I one, one last kind of somewhat, yeah, shape, sure. somewhat shapeless question that maybe you can help sure, me sure, sure. put a shape to. Whenever we're, we're comparing ourselves to, to what's already out there, I think you know, it, it's, it's, there's almost certainly somebody wiser than you. There's almost certainly someone whose sort of personal story is, is more, is more objectively extraordinary than yours. There's almost certainly someone who's more verbally dexterous than you. And that's, that's certainly my, my experience. And it seems like with the, with the spoken word, it's like, again, spoken word is not exactly my cup of tea, 
I wasn't sure what to expect with your poetry. And then when I went and watched and listened to more, I realized it was, it was more of a piece with some of the stuff out there than I, than I'd expected. But you know, when I thought about what I've learned about you, it seems like where, where you seem to have a really strong edge that really distinguishes you is that you're one of the most fluent and versatile talkers I've, I've encountered, but in the, in the, 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 the dialogue I've been reading, the gorgeous, he, he offers this definition that just really stuck in my mind. I couldn't get it out of my head. So, so he's talking about oratory and he offers this definition of orator. Cause like at this point, I've, I mean, I've listened to and heard you give talks on, uh, on, you know, various television stations or on podcasts or various other places on tax policy, on uh, cryptocurrency, <laughs> on starting a small business, on designing apps, on creating viral video content, on achieving emotional growth, and on you know lots and lots and lots you know hours on poetry, and and it came to mind. So Socrates, who's like maybe never more annoying than he is in this particular dialogue, I have to say, like I I'm less sympathetic to his point of view in this dialogue than I am to in, in most of the others that I've read. But he he offers this definition of an orator. He's the great orator. The best orator is someone who can persuade a crowd that he is an expert in any given field better than an expert in that field. Yeah, for me, the art of, say, communication, right, um, has just been something I, I guess I've honed over a really, really long period of time. Um, so, you know, back even in high school, I was... You know, doing a lot of public speak uh, speeches. I was traveling internationally for debating, and I was doing a lot of that stuff. Um, and so it's just the background that you know. I'm let's let's say the 10,000 10, hour rule by Malcolm Gladwell. I've just had my ten thousand hours doing it. Um, but you know, I'm also like I'm deeply curious around a number of different fields. Like I have an eclectic set of interests, right? And so you know, as as an extension of that, whether it's through reading a lot, whether it's through writing about a lot of different topics, you know, I'm, I'm just in and around words all the time. And so, you know, let the ability to communicate through words and now definitely through like spoken, uh, spoken words, I've always been speaking for a very long time. Right. Um, you know, I think there's a real, it's kind of the adage of the response with great power comes great responsibility because yeah, there's definitely an ability um, to communicate uh, very dense ideas. And so, you know, Richmond Feynman, someone I really, uh, really admire and is yeah, inspired and informed a lot of my thinking over the, over the years as well. There's the Feynman technique, which is essentially, if you don't know some, if you can't explain something to, you know, a five-year-old or a 10 year old, then you don't really know that concept well enough. And, you know, I really like to flex and flow between the two. And this has been just a, fucking fun conversation Matthew because it really allows yeah it allows me um to go and really pursue and satiate my intellectual curiosity in areas where we can just have a really expansive conversation but in the same way I think you know a lot of um uh, whether you call it an orator whether you call it you know somebody who's a great speaker you know great with words you know my real mark of intelligence is being able to you know have a conversation of, of this caliber um where we're speaking uh about really esoteric and really abstract concepts but then also being able to summarize the conversation we had to a 10 year old and being able to distill it down to really simple terms i'll, I'll, I'll because, let you do that because i don't know that i could <laughs> maybe i can write a poem about it maybe that's my way of doing it uh, but yeah, for me, that's also, you know, what really informs a lot of my poetry um, because the idea that, you know, a, a complex idea, something that, um, 
you know, that can be really, really dense. That can be really abstract, can be really esoteric, can then be actually accessed um, and accessed and can be really, uh, just really received in a way by a, a wider audience just because a lot of it rhymes and there's rhythm to it. But like we were talking about truths before, right? Like the messages I'm trying to convey are still the same messages. They could be, yeah, they could be really deeply co complex. They could be really abstract. They could be really nuanced. But if I'm able to get a million or millions and millions and millions of people to listen to the message, well, for me, that's actually doing good. And so, you know, um, yeah, Socrates' definition of an orator, you know, I don't think every single expert is a great communicator you know, because that's just not what, that's not their domain of expertise. They haven't spent 10,000 hours learning how to articulate, you know, the scientific discovery. They've spent 10,000 hours in, in the lab, you know, running um, experiments and, you know, testing these different hypotheses. And so for me, it's like, yeah, there's a place for, there's a place for both. You know, I really, you know, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for how much communication has been a big part of my life, but whether we talk about interpreters, you know, Mark Manson being just a brilliant interpreter. So he's been really rewarded with a lot of, you know, not only, you know, um, uh, quote unquote, you know, industry uh, um, fandom or, or, or fame in that sense, but there's also a lot of social currency because, you know, he just recently uh, wrote Will Smith's um, memoir or like co-wrote Will Smith's memoir. The only reason he was able to do that, right, is he's literally has the, the evidence. He's shown people, it's not just told people, and he's really good at distilling down ideas in a way that's accessible to a wider audience. And so, you know, in that sense, you know, he's really earned his chops. And I really believe there's a real role for that, whether it's through written communication, whether it's through musicians being able to, you know, communicate through music. And for me, it just happens to be like rhyme unintended there. It just happens to be spoken word poetry. I just couldn't help but add that rhyme triplet. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it just happens to be through the poetry that I write. And I've just been speaking for a very long time. And so and what I find really interesting is the idea of um, a skill stack. Uh, which comes from Scott Adams. But actually, if you even look back into, you know, how it happens in nature, if you look at graphene, which is one of uh, the most um, the strongest materials known to man right now, like if you actually break down the, um, the composition of what graphene is, it's just stacked layers of carbon, right? And so it's because it's stacked all at once. And you think about like a twig, right? A twig can be broken, but if there's a bunch of twigs, it's really hard to break. That's the, well, that's the, the fascies. Yeah. Exactly. That's the, yeah, that's, so, yeah. And so when you think about this idea of uh, skills, you think about, you know, unique intersections and people's scarce resources, you start to see that, you know, I might, you know, have, have a lot of experience uh, speaking uh, from a professional point of view. You know, I may have been in publications, but then I also may uh, be really interested in business, but I also am really interested in, in artistic endeavors. I'm also interested in poetry. Then you start to see the intersection of my skills become increasingly, increasingly small. Because there's very, very few people, if anyone at all, with, and my assertion is, you know, when you really go into your unique intersection, there's no one like you because you actually have the monopoly and that actually does become the dichotomy, right? It actually becomes binary. You know, um, a, a famous, uh, it's one of the founders of PayPal, Peter Thiel wrote a famous business book called Zero to One. And that's one of the, the key takeaways from that as well. It is this idea that you either have a monopoly over something or you don't. Now, I would assert you have a monopoly over being your authentic self when you really sure. find your authentic self. And so- Wh you know, Whether you, or not there's a market for that. Yeah, that's a, well, that's exactly right, right? And so it's a level of tinkering. And, um, you know, I also just have a fuck ton of fun doing it. You know, I like speaking. <laughs> I, like, I like having conversations like this, you know, and I like writing poetry and I like performing it. So thank you so much for having me and thank you for thank spending you. the time with me.
Likewise. And uh, Godspeed with JQN Studios. Thank you, my man. God, that's, a, anything- that's, a, that's a secular God. That's a, that's a non-theistic <laughs> God. God. The number of times that you went with the, like a, a religious angle, I was like, where's he getting this from? Because I've never <laughs> heard it before. Catholic upbringing. That was my interview with James Nguyen. Again, you can find his poetry online at JQN Studios on YouTube and uh, at the same handle on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you, James, for that uh, long, <laughs> that, that long in the making interview. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. You can write me as always at sleericketts at gmail.com with questions, comments, suggestions or furious complaints. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. (laughs) 